Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 13, Eleanor of Provence, the Spendthrift Savoyard. Henry III inherited the throne from his father, John, in 1216 as a child of just nine years, but would go on to have the longest reign of any medieval king of England, surpassed in longevity on the throne only by George III, Victoria, and our current queen, Elizabeth II. Given that fact, you would have thought that he would have ruled over a period of relative stability and peace in order to have lasted that long, but that could not be further from the truth. The antipathy stirred up between the high nobility and monarchy under the reign of John was never truly healed by Henry, and, as we'll see, he had to fight a fair few major rebellions in order to keep hold of his throne. Now, we've had a couple of rather quiet queens in a row now, and in fact we have to go back as far as Matilda of Boulogne before we had a queen who really had a major influence on policy while her husband was alive. So it's great now to finally have a queen who did have a good enough relationship with him. Eleanor of Provence was born in 1223 to Ramon, 4th Count of Provence, and his wife Beatrice of Savoy. Provence was, and still is, a region of southeast France on the border with Italy, containing cities like Nice, Marseille, and Aix-en-Provence. While it wasn't the greatest of the counties of France, Provence was a strong regional power, and had come off fairly well after the tumult of the Albigensian Crusade. Like much of southern France, it had a strong troubadour culture, And so Eleanor, like her namesake of Aquitaine, would have grown up around lots of singing and poetry. Historian Frank McLean says that Eleanor would have grown up amongst, quote, a milieu of music, dancing, tournaments, knights errant and fair damsels in distress, while Henry's dominions to the north symbolised sobriety and joylessness, the world of stubbornness and irreducible facts, the boring domain of penny-pinching accountants, nitpicking lawyers and pedantic administrators. This cultural difference will become important. Eleanor was the second of four daughters that were born to Ramon and Beatrice, and given that they would not have any sons, they did spectacularly well in marrying their daughters off. All four would become queens. The eldest, Margaret, married Louis IX, also known as Saint Louis, in 1234, 
presumably because he assumed that Margaret would inherit Provence on the death of her father. Her younger sister, Sanchia, would marry Richard of Cornwall, John's second son, who would become King of the Romans in 1254, and her youngest sister, Beatrice, married Charles I of Sicily. Eleanor, of course, married Henry III of England, but it took quite a bit of searching before he managed to find a suitable wife. As I said before, Henry inherited his throne at the age of nine, while England was still engulfed in the First Barons' War, a great conflict between the monarchy and high nobility over the limits of royal power. His armies were led by William Marshall, and he was a very talented commander, winning the war after victories at the Battles of Lincoln and Sandwich in 1217. Unrest still bubbled under the surface, though, and the situation both in England and in the few remaining English territories in France remained very tense. Henry began to exercise personal rule in 1227 at the age of 20, and along with reasserting royal power in France and securing his control of England, he also needed to find a wife. Henry's search for a wife, though, took forever, because there were only so many well-connected single women with money, land, and or influence who were allied to the right people. Geopolitics was everything in medieval marriage, and for quite a while he could not add his piece to the overall puzzle. Women he considered included the daughters of the Dukes of Austria and Brittany, but nothing came of them, until finally in 1235 he agreed to marry the heiress to the Norman county of Pontou, but it seems that she was only chosen because there was literally no one else around. No one was particularly keen on the match, the prospective bride and groom among them, and so both were secretly delighted when the idea was squashed by the French king, who did not want England getting any part of Normandy back. Finally, news came to the English court of the daughter of the Count of Provence, who had just turned 12, and therefore of marriage age. A key reason for the marriage seems to have been the fact that her sister Margaret had just become queen of the French, as we said, which had increased the prestige of the House of Provence, but also possibly could lead to a break in the hostilities between England and France, or at least counter that move that Louis had made. She was also said to be beautiful and highly educated, all good things. A deal was thrashed out, and before she knew it, the 12-year-old girl from the Mediterranean was headed north to marry a man she had never met, who was more than twice her age. She landed at Dover and travelled a short distance to Canterbury, where she met her husband for the first time, and there they were wed. Henry was quite a classy guy and made sure to give his new wife a warm reception. She had travelled with a very large retinue of companions, more on that to come, but Henry made sure that all of them were well cared for, and it seems that no expense was spared making her feel welcome. His father's son, he was not. The marriage was consummated swiftly after the ceremony, and on the 20th of January 1236, Eleanor was crowned and anointed as Queen at Westminster Abbey. Once again, this was a very grand spectacle. In her biography of Eleanor, Margaret Howell describes a scene of London reminiscent of the modern royal weddings, such as that of Charles and Diana or William and Kate. There was enormous pageantry, street parties, and of course, plenty of eating, not to mention plenty of drinking. They may have only just met, but it does seem that the royal couple fairly quickly developed a strong rapport and attachment to each other. Henry delighted in lavishing gifts and attention on his bride, eager to make sure that she settled into her new life and home. However, she had brought quite a lot of her old home with her, around 70 of them, who ended up settling in England. The retinue that she had brought from France are known as the Savoyards, as most of them were from her mother's side of the family. Four of her uncles settled in England, William, Thomas and Peter at court, and Boniface became Archbishop of Canterbury. Collectively, they were known as the Eagles of Savoy, and they were about to become a big headache for Henry. Although they lived in England, their loyalty was not to the kingdom or to Henry, but to Eleanor and her children. Oh, and themselves. One must not forget that. 
That is not to say that they had no regard for Henry, it's just that he was not their priority. A portent of things to come came in the late 1230s, when Henry attempted to get William of Savoy, the senior uncle, elected to become Bishop of Lincoln. William had become one of Henry's most important advisers, but his clumsy and heavy-handed meddling in the process he was supposed to stay well out of raised more than a few eyebrows. People started to mutter that the Queen's family was starting to have a little too much power in the running of the kingdom. Without wanting to sound like a broken record, the most important thing for the Queen to do, of course, was produce heirs. Despite her young age, the royal couple set about trying to accrue heirs right from the get-go, but it took a little time. Indeed, chronicler Matthew Paris mentions in 1238 that, quote, it was feared that the Queen was barren. In 1239, though, she gave birth to a healthy son, Edward, the future Edward I, or Edward Longshanks to his friends, and then the following year she gave birth to two daughters in succession, Margaret and Beatrice, before getting the desired spare second son, remember two is one, one is none, in Edmund, and then finally a third daughter called Catherine. Historians have speculated that she may have had a few more stillborn or abortive pregnancies, but there is no confirmation of that. Her position on the throne thereby secured with plentiful heirs, Eleanor could start to build a political career for herself. Henry was away a lot, fighting various wars, and there was great concern about what may happen to the kingdom if he were to die. Edward was still an infant, and so a clean succession to the eldest son was far from guaranteed, especially given the presence of Henry's brother, Richard of Cornwall. Richard was a gallant soldier and had recently returned from crusading in the Holy Land, which meant that his stock was extremely high. The Savoyards knew that they had to shore up the position of Edward, and so they talked Henry into immediately announcing his succession plans. In the event of Henry's death, Edward would be immediately given crucial castles in the Welsh marches and in Kent, while Eleanor and her brother Peter would be handed the keys of even more vital fortresses across the country. Eleanor would then be put in place as part of a regency council dominated by Savoyards, but excluding Richard. This was an audacious play by the Savoyards, but they also had a character offer Richard, marriage to one of Eleanor's sisters, Sanchia. After the disastrous defeat at Talibor, which we discussed last time, Sanchia, accompanied by her mother Beatrice of Savoy, arrived in England, where Henry laid on yet another magnificent ceremony at Westminster. Beatrice, though, had really come all that way to secure a loan from her son-in-law of 4,000 marks, a request that was granted, royally ticking off the English nobility. They were further incensed when Henry started to permit scores of the daughters of Savoyards to marry English nobles. This flooding of the marriage market was greatly annoying to native nobles who had daughters of their own who needed husbands. When all this was added to the numerous land grants and pensions awarded to Savoyards, very quickly factions within the English nobility began to mutter tersely about this plague of dirty foreigners. The focus of their ire was Eleanor, who was portrayed as the snake in the grass, using her womanly wiles to beguile the king into favouring smelly Frenchmen over the righteous English. In a time when directly criticising the king was a very dangerous prospect, it was far easier to go after his wife, especially when his wife was not from these parts. The biggest group of opposing lords were not English at all. They were the Lusignans. Now, if you remember from last time, John's Queen Isabel had remarried after the death of John and had had an unholy number of children, including five sons. Now, these, of course, were Henry's half-brothers, and they were invited over England to accept the patronage of Henry after essentially being kicked out of Poitou by Alphonse of Poitiers. Henry was very much the family man, and probably didn't think that this was a big thing, as his great clan of nobles began to marry into English noble families too, and accrue whatever power they could get their hands on. 
But, of course, very quickly they started to run into the same problems that the English nobles had been hitting for years. The Savoyards had nabbed all the good stuff, and they could not break into the iron grip that the Queen and her uncle Peter of Savoy, who by now was the King's senior advisor, held on political patronage, and in particular, over his son and heir, Edward. Their squabbling became a serious headache for Henry, as they fought like cat and mouse for every office and land ground to round. I won't trouble you with their various little fights, they are pretty dull stuff, mostly involving squabbles over this or that land grant or this or that clerical office, but suffice it to say that Henry was getting very, very tired of the whole thing, and was rapidly losing patience with his wife, who would not shut up about this or that injustice meted out against her countrymen from Savoy. The biggest fight going on, though, I will talk about, because it concerns Simon de Montfort. Simon de Montfort was the Earl of Leicester, whose father was a famous crusader, but he was disliked by the king because he had secretly married one of his sisters without his permission. This did not bother Eleanor, though, who arranged for him to become governor of Gascony in 1248 in order to prevent Richard of Cornwall from getting too much influence there. His appointment was seen as a favour to Eleanor, but de Montfort did not do a great job over there, gaining a reputation for cruelty, raising the king's ire further. De Montfort, though, did have one ally still, Eleanor. She still saw the Earl of Leicester as the best chance for her son to rule Gascony in the future, and so she used all the influence she had with the king to prop up the hated governor. The king agreed, but one suspects he was not delighted to see his wife in cahoots with de Montfort. In 1252, the governor was impeached, though, by the landowners and churchmen of Gascony for corruption and incompetence, delighting the king, but he was then enraged when he was bailed out yet again by the queen and her uncle, Peter of Savoy. Things were getting dicey between the king and queen. The final straw came a few months later over a dispute over clerical office. To summarise, the Queen had control over a church in Hertfordshire and got one of her own guys elected as the priest. Now, this was not technically within her right, as only the King had the right to do this, and for whatever reason, he chose this moment to go a bit ballistic. He expelled the Queen's candidate, imposed his own, and, according to Matthew Paris, was, quote, glowing with anger. He rounded on his wife and exclaimed, quote, how high does the arrogance of the woman rise if it is not restrained? This is one of the most famous put-downs of female power in the Middle Ages, and a clear sign that Eleanor was overstepping the mark, and having ideas above her station. All of this put such a strain on the royal marriage that Henry expelled his wife from the court for two weeks, and withdrew the revenues from the Queen's gold for three weeks. This was a very public dressing down for the Queen, and she quickly realised that she had overstepped the mark. That Christmas, she made a very public reconciliation with the Lusignans, giving them all sorts of gifts and attention, which is enough to get her back into the king's good books, to such an extent that when the next year Henry had to go to Gascony to do some warring, he left Eleanor in charge as regent. After a succession of basically powerless queens, this was a big change for the kingdom, a throwback to the old Norman days. Eleanor attended two parliaments, met foreign embassies, oversaw the king's council, as well as the royal finances, all while pregnant with her daughter Catherine. Eleanor was growing in confidence as a queen and was fully aware of the sway that she had over Henry, even after his little... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Outburst. And everyone else knew it too. While in dispute with some clerics, they named her the king's, quote, nightbird. A reference to the soft power that she could exert due to her sharing a bedchamber with the king. Pillow talk power plays, if you will. Her position as regent, as I said, was no mere figurehead. She really ran things. She was, quote, appointed to keep and govern the realm of England and the lands of Wales and Ireland. In her biography of Eleanor, Margaret Howell makes hay with just how big a deal this was. Not only was it unusual in this time for a queen, especially a young queen, as Eleanor was 30 at this point, to hold this amount of power, it was over the heads of some pretty powerful, capable and loyal men, most notably his brother Richard of Cornwall. And this was no slapdash decision either. She was handed legal authority and handed more land to be held in her name, because more land equals more influence, something that would become vital should the king die on campaign. She was to be the keeper of the kingdom's seal, the literal stamp of approval required for any legislation to be made law, and she was given control of her own council. Now, the king did not hand her total control, and he would backseat drive a little from Gascony, but this is still a huge amount of power that he was signing off to Eleanor, albeit on a temporary basis. After this period of regency ended, though, her power and influence only grew. While on a royal trip to the continent, she played a very large role in arranging the Treaty of Paris, an agreement between Henry and the French King Louis IX, which ended a century of warfare between the two kingdoms. While it would not totally cease the enmity held between them, Louis promised to stop funding English rebels, and Henry agreed to pay homage for his remaining French holdings. It wasn't a perfect deal, but it was the only one on the table, and it was in part arranged by Eleanor. Her next involvement in foreign affairs involved the Kingdom of Sicily. This was a powerful kingdom, stretching from Naples all the way down to the eponymous island, and Eleanor wanted it for her second son, Edmund. The poet was related to the Savoyard, and so agreed that Edmund should succeed the current king, who then unfortunately promptly went and died before things could be settled. The throne was seized by a pretender, and so Henry was forced to raise a ton of money in taxes to fund an army to win the throat for his son. While Edmund was crowned, the whole idea never went anywhere. This Sicilian business did absolutely nothing for Eleanor's reputation as a spendthrift Savoyard favouring queen, and her popularity plummeted. Eleanor did not help matters, though, by being yet another foreign queen who very publicly did not like England or the English very much. She made a show of ordering all of her very fancy and very expensive clothes, furnishings, books, everything from the continent, all bought and paid for from revenues and taxes paid by the English. From the royal records, it seems that she never really socialised with any English noblewomen, content instead to hang out with Savoyards, and this disconnect between herself and her subjects only grew. In 1258, discontent within the English high nobility led them to issuing an ultimatum to the king, 
that essentially boiled down to the end of foreigners holding lots of land and castles in England, along with the calling of regular parliaments, in a series of demands known as the Provisions of Oxford, and then more stuff was added in the later Provisions of Westminster. This was, in effect, a second Magna Carta, which Henry was forced to sign, but no one was more furious about it than Eleanor, who very publicly refused to abide by its conditions, seeing it as a filthy Lusignan-incited attack on the kingdom. She continued to move against the Lusignans, which only made the situation worse. According to the Chronicle of Melrose Abbey, Eleanor was, quote, the root, fomenter, and disseminator of all the discord which was soon between her husband, King Henry, and the barons of his kingdom. This discord has become known as the Second Barons' War, and most chroniclers place the blame squarely on Eleanor for inciting it, though from the perspective of the 21st century, we can see that this is pretty much rubbish. For the people at the time, though, she was the cause of all their pain, and quite a few were out for her blood. Leading the charge against the royal forces was none other than Simon de Montfort, whose alliance with the Savoyards had collapsed spectacularly. Initially, de Montfort managed to pull Edward the heir to the throne over to his side, but before hostilities really broke out, Edward was reconciled and ended up fighting on the side of his father. The war ravaged Eleanor's lands in England, and the couple retreated into the tower for their own protection. She started to rely more and more on her son Edward, who she attempted to join in Windsor, a journey that, according to the annals of Dunstable, nearly cost her dearly. Quote, the Queen left the tower by the Thames on her way to Windsor by the boat, and came to London Bridge, when the Londoners assailed her and her men shamefully with foul and base words, and even casting stones. In 1264, the two sides went to France, where King Louis, backed by the Pope, offered to act as mediator. He heard both sides of the debate, but clearly favoured the arguments of his brother King. While it is always entertaining to see your rivals in jeopardy, he did not like the precedent that Magna Carta and the provisions of Oxford set. I mean, what if his own barons started to get funny ideas like that? His overall judgement, though, was heavily influenced by the lobbying by the Queen. According to the hostile compiler of the Annals of Tewkesbury, Louis was, quote, "...deceived and beguiled by the serpent-like fraud and speech of the woman, the Queen of England." This reference to the serpent-like tongue was a clear linking of Eleanor to the biblical Eve, pretty much the strongest insult that a cleric could make to a woman. In a decision known as the Mise of Amiens, Louis sided decisively with the royal party, but by doing so, so fervently, he ruined any opportunity for peace. The civil war quickly went against the royal party, and at the Battle of Lewis a few months later, Henry and his son were captured by the forces of Simon de Montfort and were forced to hand royal authority over to him. In all but name, de Montfort was now king, and the king and heir were held captive. Eleanor, though, was having none of this, and she set up base in Gascony, England's last remaining power base on the continent. She needed the money that the duchy could produce, and there she ruled it with as much authority as any man would have done, a fact often lost in the chaos that was the order of the day. She set about raising as much men and money as she get her hands on, even pawning the crown jewels. She personally persuaded Louis to lend her the money that she needed in exchange for some bishoprics in France. Selling valuable seas was a drastic move and one that attracted criticism, but it had to be done. She and Peter of Savoy then raised this army and attempted to invade, but poor weather made it impossible. In the end, though, it was Edward who saved the day. He escaped from captivity and won the decisive Battle of Evesham, killing de Montfort and routing his army. But how did Edward escape? He was released by Roger Mortimer, whose wife had received a gift of the girdle from the Queen, something that may seem small, but patronage was the best currency in this period, and probably it still is now. After the victory of Evesham, Edward sent Mrs Mortimer a gift of thanks, 
Simon de Montfort's head and testicles. Yuck. This all very much brings my memory back to episode 7, when we discuss Matilda of Boulogne's actions between the defeat at Lincoln and the triumph at Winchester. In this case, and back then, the sitting king was in captivity, and so it was their wives that had to keep the royalist flame alive and raise the men and money needed to continue the fight. They did not necessarily lead men in the field, but they ensured that there were men for the commanders to lead. Her actions in those years were vital to gaining the freedom of Henry III, and though the war would continue for a few years, the situation would never become as perilous as they had been before Evesham. For me, what really marks Eleanor out as queen, though, is the determination that she had to ensure the rights and status of her children. While other queens, such as Eleanor of Aquitaine, seem to have played favourites with their children, Eleanor of Provence was a tireless advocate for all her children, most notably her two sons. We have already seen her safeguard the succession of Edward by getting Henry to agree to a comprehensive inheritance plan early in his reign, and of course her attempt to obtain a crown for Edmund had nearly cost her everything. In the end, of course, Edmund did not manage to secure the Sicilian throne, but Eleanor used some pretty grubby methods to secure for him the earldoms of Leicester and Lancaster, as well as extensive lands in Derbyshire and Devon. These were obtained through forfeiture and extortion of lands from nobles who had deposed the king during the Barons' Wars, but it was not really the done thing. In many ways, there were acts as tyrannical as those done by King John, but Eleanor was in the ascendancy, so she got away with it. She, though, did not just pay attention to her sons. Records surviving show that she did make sure that her daughters were well-educated and clothed. While it seems that many royal parents viewed their daughters purely as pawns in their political games, it seems that this was not the case with Eleanor. The youngest daughter, Catherine, was a sickly child, and contemporaries make a point to say how much the king and queen worried for her. There is a record of them placing a silver statue of her on the shrine of St Edward in a vain attempt to get him to intercede. When she eventually died at the age of four, the couple were inconsolable for days, and paid for a magnificent tomb and for masses to be prayed for every day, continuing even up to the reign of Catherine's brother, Edward I. When her daughter Margaret was married off to the King of Scots, she was frustrated at not being able to visit her due to the cross-border tensions. She sent off a messenger, who was ordered to make sure that her husband was taking care of her, but allegedly that messenger was murdered after discovering that she was ill. The next person to go check on Margaret was none other than Henry III, and he was accompanied by a few thousand of his armoured friends. Eleanor outlived all three of her daughters, and so in her later years, she spent much of her time keeping a watchful eye on her great brood of grandchildren. Like most queens, she also spent a lot of time on religious matters. We have already seen that she and her husband were great patrons of St Edward, also you may know him as Edward the Confessor. Indeed, they named their first son after him, the first king of England since the conquest to have an English name rather than a Norman one. They also gave lavishly to the Franciscan order, and she in particular also donated to the Dominicans. We also know that she was a great fan of gardens, and had well-ordered gardens set up at all her favourite palaces and houses. In 1272, Henry III finally died at the age of 65. His heir Edward was not in the kingdom at the time, he was in fact in the Holy Land on the last European crusade to that region, and his succession was far from certain. The kingdom had only just emerged from a period of civil war, and the passage of the son from father to eldest son was far from certain in this period. To steal a phrase from C.G.P. Grey, bigger army diplomacy will always win out. She recognised that, not being the most popular queen England has ever had, she could not take centre stage, but she worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make sure that everything was secure for when Edward would return in 1274 to be crowned. The death of her husband was far from the end of her life. She ended up outliving him for nearly two decades. She was, though, no Eleanor of Aquitaine or Isabel of Angoulême. 
She did not have huge ambitions for her political career after being widowed, and didn't make a huge fuss when she was sidelined. In fact, she mostly retired from court, only making the odd appearance here and there. She involved herself greatly with the raising of her grandchildren, but she could not stop herself occasionally meddling in the affairs of her son, though he seems to have not spent as much time with her as she would have liked. We have surviving one such letter that many mothers now might recognise writing to their prodigal children. Quote, Know, dear sire, that we are most desirous to have good news of your health and how things have been with you since you left us. We are letting you know that we are in good health, thanks be to God. Despite the ambivalence that she held towards England for much of her life, she decided to retire there, choosing the convent of Amesbury. Now, of course, being the lover of finery that she was, she did not decide to live like the nuns she was cloistered with. Indeed, she spent a shed load of money making improvements to her lodgings there. Once a Savoyard, always a Savoyard. There is one act, though, that she is said to have been involved with during the kingship of her son that has attracted controversy, and that is the expulsions of English Jewish population in 1290. At the time, and subsequently, she is said to have been the principal driver behind this policy, with many pointing to her own expulsion of Jews from her own lands in 1275. There is, though, no evidence to support that she was behind Edward's action. Indeed, his decision was purely financial and political, and did not need any help from his elderly mother. After a relatively quiet final two decades of life, Eleanor of Provence died at Amesbury on the 24th of June 1291. Her death was much mourned in the kingdom, as she had managed to redeem much of her reputation in her later years, as her adoptive countrymen finally began to see her as one of them, and she did the same. Her reign as queen is very interesting, as in many ways she seems to have had a reign from a different time, as it had far more in common with that of the Norman queens than the Angevins that immediately preceded her. She certainly made mistakes in her early years, but I think that all of them are perfectly understandable. She came to the throne of England as a nervous 12-year-old, marrying a man more than double her age who she had never met, ruling over a kingdom whose climate and customs were entirely alien to her. It's perfectly understandable that she gravitated towards her countrymen, even if that did contribute to the Savoyard Lusignan infighting that ended up nearly ripping the realm in two. What is not always recognised about her, especially by contemporaries, is how good a diplomat she was. While it may have been Edward who routed and killed de Montfort at Evesham, he would not have escaped if it were not for the diplomacy of Eleanor, nor would he have had an army to lead. She was not the most successful Queen of England due to all the mistakes made in her early years, but she did manage to reverse a century-old tradition of marginalising crowned queens, and not even of Eleanor of Aquitaine had managed to do that. Next time, we will deal with the third and mercifully final Eleanor to become Queen of England, Eleanor of Castile, a queen far more popular than her predecessor, but nothing like as influential. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.